Would you please join me in a word of prayer as we begin? Father, it is a beautiful thing to be part of the family of God. So we thank you as our creator that you have also adopted us as your children so that we can call you Father. We praise you that you sent your son to die for us, that we would not bear your wrath, for he did it on our behalf. We thank you for putting your spirit within us, and the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, letting us know that we are your children, and that you allow us to live our Christian life in the context of the family of God, the household of faith. So Lord, would you now be with us as we open this beautiful text, make us mindful of what your spirit has inspired in it, that we might understand it, embrace it, and apply it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, four weeks ago today, my wife and I flew to Denver, where we rented a car and made our way to uh, Seattle, Washington for a wedding. And we stopped off in Bellevue, Colorado to see where Bob Land grew up, the home of Noosa Yogurt. And then uh, we stopped over in Laramie, Wyoming, and saw the Hoggarts and met their new son, Jake. And then we went to Billings, Montana, where I spent my second and third grade year, first and second grade years. Then we went through Glacier National Park and then over to Sandpoint, Idaho, to Leavenworth, Washington, and finally to our destination, Seattle. And over such a great distance, it was five states, a couple thousand miles, about 1,600 miles, every so often I just had to pause, zoom back on my map and say, okay, where are we? Where have we been? Where are we at? Where are we going? Because over a long journey, it's easy to lose your place. And that's important to do in studying a long book as well. Uh, one thing I typically encourage readers is to consult the table of content frequently so that you can remind yourself where you are in the author's argument, where you are in the story. Well, today we are at a segment seam in the Gospel of Matthew, and so we want to briefly pause and see where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going so that we don't lose our place in the broader narrative. So the Gospel of Jesus Christ, according to his apostle Matthew, begins with the genealogy, birth, and infancy of Christ in the first two chapters, followed by Jesus' baptism and temptation, then this Galilean ministry, his public ministry, that's going to go in different pulses and segments, as we'll see in a little bit. Then there will be a journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus focuses on preparing his apostles for his departure. And finally, the culmination, the crescendo of Christ's ministry, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and the final commissioning. We are in that portion of Jesus' Galilean ministry that is his public ministry. We get the beginning where Jesus called disciples to himself. From the very beginning, he was preparing people to take his place, to continue his ministry like he does in us today. That we are the disciples of the disciples, making disciples until our Lord comes back for us. And this public segment, this largest segment of Matthew, moves in discourses, long sections of Jesus' teaching, interspersed with episodes of Jesus' activity. So the longest first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount. And then we saw two chapters of Jesus' miraculous workings, confirming and validating his identity as the Messiah. Then we saw a long discourse as he sent out the twelve into a short-term missionary journey. And then in this second season after that, there has been a theme of growing opposition. That despite all the good that Jesus is doing, all the people that he's helping, all the people that he's healing, all the truth that he is teaching, there is this growing swell of opposition by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, until finally they have set their heart against Christ and are plotting among themselves how they will destroy him. And then we'll see, once we uh, start next week, another set of discourse on the parables of the kingdom and then move into our final season of Jesus' public ministry before we begin his journey to Jerusalem. So this is where we're at. 
we are ending this second stage of works where the theme is opposition, protest, enemies rising against Christ. So with that in mind, now let's look at our text today, which is the end of this uh, section of opposition, where we are going to see Jesus' sign, Jesus' warning, and then Jesus' family. Look with me at verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the scribes and Pharisees are by now familiar figures in the Gospel of Matthew. The scribes were zealous for the knowing of the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The Pharisees were zealous for the keeping of the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, at least according to their traditions. And they are the opponents often seen opposing Christ, and they're often mentioned together because they form natural allies in opposing Christ because he contested their teaching and their views. They call him teacher because this is most often what they call him. He's not the Messiah, he's not the son of David to them, but at least he's teaching so they can call him teacher. It's not an acknowledgement of his authority, it's just a neutral term that's most often used by those who actually question Jesus or oppose him. Interestingly, uh, Judas Iscariot uses the term rabbi, the Hebrew equivalent of teacher, when he addresses Jesus in the upper room and in the garden of Gethsemane. Not Lord, not master, as the other apostles do. And they ask for him a sign. Now the Bible talks about signs and wonders. They're both miraculous, but wonders are wondrous, they're wonderful. But a sign signifies. A sign is a miraculous work that testifies to something, that identifies someone as something. You remember when God sent Moses to Israel to be their deliverer? And he said, but how would I respond if the people don't embrace me? And so he said, what is that in your hand? A staff. Extend it out. And the staff turned into a snake. What if they still don't believe? Take your hand, put it into your garment, pull it out. It becomes white and leprous. Put it back in. It'll be healed. And by these signs, the people of Israel will know that you are my appointed deliverer. They weren't just wondrous works. They were significant. They signified. They identified. They validated. And that's what Jesus has been doing. What they're asking is, give us an undeniable sign that you are in fact the son of David, that you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. You are his designated deliverer. And Jesus, knowing their insincerity, says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus has been doing signs since the very beginning of his ministry. He's been curing the sick, healing the lame, uh, restoring sight to the blind, speech to the mute, walk to those who couldn't walk. He even raised someone from the dead. His whole ministry has been testified one sign after another that this is indeed the Messiah of God. And yet they've already determined to reject him no matter what he does. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to give you another sign. And in fact, I'm going to give you a warning. There will be a sign of the sign of Jonah. So you remember when Jonah the prophet was told by God, arise and go to Nineveh? 
Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, whose wickedness rose to such a great extent that God decided to destroy it. But first he sent a prophet to give them an opportunity to repent. So God said, Arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah instead arose and went where? To Tarshish, in the exact opposite direction. And when he was on the boat, God tossed a storm until the sailors tossed Jonah overboard. And then he was swallowed by a great fish. And he spent three dark nights in the heart of the sea until God restored him to light and life again. And Jesus says, in a similar way, the Son of Man is going to be placed in the heart of the earth. A clear indication of his coming burial and resurrection. That as Jonah spent three nights in the sea and the sea monster, Jesus will spend three nights in the earth and the tomb and then will be miraculously restored. Because spending three days, three nights in the tomb isn't enough a significant event. Billions have died and been placed in the earth. We will die and be placed in the earth likely. The significant, the significant thing is that Jesus only spent three days there, only spent three nights there until, G, until the Lord raised him from the dead. So the resurrection is the undeniable, unmistakable, ultimate sign that Jesus is the Messiah. And the tragedy is, is that these scribes and Pharisees who demanded such a sign are going to hear of it, are going to hear accounts of the risen Christ, and they're still going to deny him. They're still going to contest him. They're still going to oppose him. There was no sign that God could do that would convince them because they had already become so calloused in their own hearts that they would not believe that they spurned him no matter what. And so he says, I'm warning you on judgment day, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up against you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah who was with them just one day. And yet you were here watching months of my preaching and teaching and you refused to repent. So in Jonah chapter three, Jonah went to the city and he said, repent in three days, the Lord is going to restore the city. And what did Nineveh do? They repented. The king himself put on sackcloth, coarse uh, clothing and fasted. And he demanded that all of the people do likewise. He even demanded that the animals be put in sackcloth and fast. So you've got horses and donkeys and animal in sackcloth because every living being was going to repent in hopes that God would be merciful and not bring judgment. And you know what God did? He spared them. And so he says on judgment day, they are going to stand up, not verbally condemning them, but by their very visually standing there, they will be a condemnation. Why is it that the Ninevites, the Assyrians are standing there among the lamb sheep, the shepherd sheep, when we who consider ourselves passionate for the law are here among the goats and there will be a visual condemnation. Now, when I lived in Austin, I met an international student one night in my apartment complex. And I said, what is your heritage? And he said, well, I'm Assyrian. I said, oh, you're from Syria. He goes, no, I'm Assyrian. I said, really? I didn't know Assyria was still on the map. It's not on my globe. He goes, well, it's not. But there is a tradition of Assyrian Christians who trace our lineage all the way back to the repentant Ninevites all the way back here. And so I was stunned that among the anonymous believers just moving among us, there is a tradition of unbroken Christian heritage going all the way back to Nineveh when Jonah preached and they repented. It was stunning. God is up to so much more than we give him credit for. But there's going to be another witness that rises up in that day. Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon 
and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba, the queen of the Sabaeans, and they were located in all the way to the southwest of the Arabian Peninsula, the veritable ends of the earth. But she had heard rumors of the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. And so she went to go and see for herself. And she asked all of her hardest questions and he answered them all. And when it says when she saw his household and their garments and the stairs that led him up to the temple, all the spirit went out of her. And this pagan queen said, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king. And I love that lesson. That one of the signs of God's favor upon a people is he gives them good leaders. She says, God loved Israel so much that he made you their king. Conversely, one of sign of God's judgment on our people is by giving bad and wicked leaders. But the point that Jesus is making is that on judgment day, there is going to be the queen of Sheba and the Sabaeans who are going to stand up among the sheep because they acknowledged Solomon with just a visit. And yet someone greater than Solomon is here among you, has done much more than Solomon ever did, has spoken many more words than Solomon ever did, who is wisdom itself, and yet you've rejected him. And their standing there is going to be a visual condemnation of you. So if you had siblings and mom or dad on Saturday morning said, wake up, it's time to get out and help with the lawn. And some kids did, likely the firstborn and the older in the family, and others didn't. And then when they finally got out of bed, the earlier siblings out on the lawn were a visual condemnation of their earnestness versus their sluggish younger siblings. And that's what's going on here. There are going to be unexpected people among the sheep because they responded, but the scribes and the Pharisees who should have known better, who assumed that they were the favorite of God, are going to be among the goats and are going to be sent away forever. So Jesus gives them a warning. Look at verses 43 through 45. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, at first glance, this paragraph seems out of place. And whenever you find a verse or a passage that seems confusing, the first thing you do is you step back and look at it in the broader context. What does the statement mean in that sentence, in that paragraph, in that section, in that chapter, in that portion of the book? And in this instance, this last confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees was occasioned by Jesus casting out a demon of a man whom he had made mute and blind. And you remember that they had said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul? This is still in that context. So Jesus goes back to that original instance and said, that man that I cast that demon out of, and now he is seeing and he's speaking, he now needs for the Spirit of God to take resident within him. Or that Spirit will come back with other evil spirits and wreak even more hurt and havoc on that person. And the analogy being drawn is between the people of Israel, 
that Jesus calls this evil and adulterous generation. Those are terms used of Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy. When God called them out of Egypt, he called them to Sinai. He said, if you only obey me, I'll lead you to the promised land. And yet he brought them to the very gates of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. And they refused to go in because they were big and tall in the land. The fruit's big, but so are the people. And so God said, all of this generation will die in the wilderness. Their children will get another chance. And that second generation are warned, don't be like your parents. Be faithful. Be obedient. Trust. Obey. This same term is now being used of the people in Jesus' day because God sent not Moses but the Messiah to manifest himself in undeniable signs and yet they would not receive him. So Jesus warns him, I am here among you. I'm casting out demons. He cast out demons by the legions. And so there is some order being restored to the chaos. But if they don't repent and receive Christ and return to God, then greater evil will befall them. It's not enough for an evil spirit to be sent out. You need a holy resident to take residence within you. So when the U.S. forces went into Afghanistan and cast out the Taliban, but there wasn't a strong enough government in its place, when the U.S. forces left, what happened? The Taliban returned with a vengeance. Or to use an illustration perhaps closer to home for some of you, if you own rental property and you have a squatter that is destroying the property, and so let's say you evict him out of the home and you go to great expense to repair the home and undo the damage, but then you leave the house unrented, what will soon happen? The squatter will come back. He'll, I see some nodding heads. He'll bring others with him and the second estate is going to be worse than the first. Jesus says, I'm here among you. I'm casting out demons. Things are getting better. People are being healed, but then I'm going to leave and that empty house is going to be worse off unless you repent and return to God, unless his Holy Spirit comes within you. And at this point, the chapter could have very well concluded. Matthew in chapter 11 and 12 records these numerous instances of growing opposition, and it could have ended with Jesus warning them not to blaspheme the Spirit by saying that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And then he could have warned them that the men of Nineveh are going to rise up against you, the Sheba and the Sabaeans are going to rise up against you. And now I'm telling you to repent so that God will come back among you. It would have been a perfect ending point. But he goes beyond it. And he ends not with a warning, but an invitation. If you will repent, if you will embrace Jesus Messiah, he won't only come and dwell among you. He will adopt you into his family. Look at the next verse. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeing to, seeing to speak to you. Now, Matthew was here at this time. And he remembers the crowds listening to Jesus. And then someone comes up, Your mom's here. Your brothers are here. Now, we learn in the next chapter that Jesus had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. There's no mention of Joseph. He presumably has passed on by this point. But as we'll see at the end of Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, at least two, are they not all with us? 
So the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she miraculously conceived Jesus, the firstborn. But then after Jesus was born, Mary and her husband Joseph had normal marital relations and God gave them four other sons and at least two other daughters. Now the Gospel of Mark mentions the motive for their coming. It says that the crowds were coming on Jesus to such an extent that he wasn't even taking time to eat. And the family, the brothers we know explicitly from John 7, disbelieved Jesus that he was the Messiah. It says they went to take custody of him because they said he has lost his senses. So Jesus' half-siblings, his half-brothers say, this guy's nuts. We got to go and grab him and put him into custody. That's why they came. But Matthew doesn't focus on their motive. Instead, he focuses on Jesus' response. And notice, first of all, what Jesus doesn't do. If I was speaking to a group and someone said, your mom and dad are here and want to speak to you, I might say, thank you for coming. I'm going to go talk to my family. Come back tomorrow. Or I might welcome them in and introduce them to you. Jesus does neither of those. Nor does he invite Mary to come up and said, let me introduce you to the queen of heaven. After I'm gone, you should pray to her. Nor does he say, these are my brothers, and they're now going to be my successors. I'm going to set up a dynasty of sorts. He does none of those things. Instead, he uses it as an occasion to teach his followers about an aspect of their identity that was so intimate, he had to be explicit if they were to believe it. Look at verses 48 through 50. Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's staggering. Young and old, old and young, male and female, Jew and Gentile, intelligent and eloquent, uneducated and inarticulate, mature in their faith, or just beginning their walk, passionate for Jesus, or perhaps a little bit lukewarm, if they are in Christ, they are members of God's family. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. This is the good news of the gospel, that even though we are sinners, even though we were enemies of God, even though we opposed him and reject him, even though we love this world rather than our father, the creator of this world, if we will repent of our sins and embrace Jesus Christ as our savior, God will forgive us, and He will justify us, declare us to be righteous in Christ. He will put His Spirit within us to make us be born from above. And then you know what He does? He adopts us into His family. Listen to what the Apostle John says in the first chapter, chapter of his Gospel. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you will accept God's Son as your Savior, he will accept you as his sons and daughters. What a privilege. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, nor is there male nor female. You were all one in Christ Jesus. If you don't have a family, or if you had a family 
that is harsh and hurtful and hateful or that is distance or has distanced themselves from you, if you will repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as your Savior, God says, I'll be your father. I'll make you part of my family. If you've abandoned your family and they wouldn't take you back, God says, if you'll welcome my son into your life, I'll welcome you into my family. For those of you who maybe look at other families that seem so tight and intimate and say, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that with my family. God says that if you will repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as your Savior, that he will adopt you into his family and you will have so many brothers and sisters in Christ that it will take all of eternity to enjoy them all. And there is an invitation in the gospel that Jesus offers to say, come join the family of God. Come be my child. Come into my household. And then you will find spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers, as some of you have, and spiritual aunts and uncles, and spiritual brothers and sisters, because those who are Christ's disciples are members of Christ's family. And we get the joy of living our life together. And this is just the prelude, the anticipation of the eternity to come when we will live in the very presence of God and His Son and His Spirit with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will enjoy forever and forever and forever. And how does one get that privilege? How does one enter into that joy? You simply become a follower of Jesus Christ. You simply say, God, I am a sinner and I can never be holy enough to merit righteousness before a perfectly holy God. Forgive me my sins. Jesus saved me and he will adopt you into his family. And what is the characteristic sign of a member of the family of God? Obedience. Obedience. Those who do the will of the Father who sent me. Which is why when Jesus taught us how to pray every day, those who have the privilege of praying to our God, our Father who is in heaven, what's our priority? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, then your will be done. The characteristic sign of God's children is we love him so much, we esteem him so much, we revere him so much, we want to obey him. And even though we falter and fail and fall short, we still strive to obey because that's the characteristic of a true believer. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the way that we distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet? They all say, Lord, Lord. But who are the ones that Jesus knows? Those who do the will of the Father who sent him. So uh, my family comes from Floydana, Texas, which is a small cotton farming community out about an hour outside of Lubbock. And one time we went back for the big event in Floydana, Old Settlers Days, where the tractors and the combines do their ride through the town. And as we stopped from our rival inn, we went to a store to get a drink or take a bathroom break. And the person behind the counter looks at me and says, you're a brown. I said, yes, I am. Now, I'd never seen this person in my life. But because my family was from that town, he recognized certain features in me, a certain sparsity of head covering that was just distinguishable of browns. And he said, you're a brown. Because I had a family resemblance. I had a family identity. But for Christians, it's obedience. It's obedience. And specifically, it is obeying God in holiness and obeying God to love. Listen to 1 John. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. How do I tell someone who is a goat and a sheep? Well, does he obey God and does he love his brother? That's how you tell. John goes on to say, 
We love because God first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, his brother in Christ, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. If you tell me you love me, but don't love my daughter Rachel and my son Michael, you don't really love me. If you tell David you love him, but don't love his two boys and his two girls, you don't really love David. If we love God, we love God's children. And the way that you could tell if you truly are a child of God is do you love God's children? According to the Apostle John, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, any professing Christian who does not love other Christians is not a true Christian. That's the mark of a true disciple that Jesus gave in the upper room the night before he was crucified. Listen to John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Three times he repeats it. Then two chapters later, in chapter 15, he repeats it again twice more. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are my friends if you do what I command you, and this is what I command you, that you love one another. Five times, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. What if I don't? Then you're not my true disciple, because my true disciples love other disciples. True Christians love other Christians. And why we gather together is to express and grow in our obedience to God and to express and grow in our love for one another. This is who we are as a church. This is our identity as Dini Community Church. This is how we introduce ourselves in our bylaws and constitution. Dini Community Church is a spiritual family of saved sinners who love God, one another, and others. Because we love God, we trust, obey, adore, exalt, study, serve, worship, and pray to Him. And we desire others to do the same because there is none so loving and lovely as our God. Because we love one another, we serve, encourage, edify, support, pray for, and fellowship with one another and help each other grow in holiness, faith, hope, and love. Because we love others, our non-believing neighbors, we serve them, pray for them, Share the truth of God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ with them and invite them to join God's family. In reliance on the Holy Spirit, we prayerfully strive to make disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God by loving him, one another, and others in accordance with Scripture until our Lord returns to unite us with our God forever. This is who we are. This is why we're here. This is why if you become a member of Dini Community Church, you receive an email saying, Welcome to the family because that's who we are. That's the identity God has given us. That is the privileged place that our Father has made the way for us through His Son. So when my wife and I arrived in Seattle, uh, we attended a wedding of two people that we had not, never met. And actually, they've already been married. They were gonna get married two years ago, COVID hit, and so after several attempts to have a celebration, they just went ahead and got married. They had a child. And people came from around the country to attend a second wedding of a couple that many of us had never met before. Why did we go to such expense to attend a wedding, a second wedding of two strangers? 
because they were family. And while we were there, we spent countless hours getting to meet some of Knox's 32 first cousins. And we sat across the table, we exchanged numbers, we took photos along family groups so that we can create a family line. There's plans for an annual family reunion. There's gonna be a wedding in the December that people are making plans for. One of the family members is opening up a bakery in Manhattan. There's plans to go there for the grand opening. Why would we do this? Because they're family and family supports one another. There were some hardships shared, some challenges that were cried over and we pray for them because they're family. If there were needs that we could have met, we would have tried to intervene because they're family and that's what family does. If you are a Christian, you are a son and daughter of the living God. You have been adopted through Christ by the Spirit into the, father, into the Father's house. You are a child of God. You are not an only child of God. <laughs> you have brothers and sisters. And the Father chooses whom he adopts into his family, not you. Your job is to embrace and love and serve everyone adopted into the family. And they have to do the same for us. We are a family. Embrace that identity, enjoy that identity, live out that identity. And if you are here today and do not know yet Jesus Christ as your savior, even today in the quiet of your seat, you can just simply say, God, I'm a sinner. Jesus saved me and he will adopt you into the household of faith and we would rejoice to welcome you into the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this beautiful text. We thank you for this beautiful truth. We thank you that you opened the eyes of our heart to understand your gospel, that you opened our hearts to receive it, and that having done so, we now know that we are your children. So we pray that you would make us more obedient, that we would be better able to represent you and serve you. We pray that you would make us more loving of you, of our other brothers and sisters, of our neighbors, that we would better be able to represent and serve you. Lord, would you use this church to be that warm example of what a Christian family is intended to be so that those around us will say, I want to join, and we'll say, we want you here too, and that you would do the same mercy to them that you showed to us and bring them into the family, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.